wasn't sure where I was going to go with my message today. You know, if you've been around here for the last couple of weeks, you know I got kind of vulnerable the last two weeks, shared a lot about my life, a lot about my story. And last week, Becky and I joined, Becky joined me up here to talk about our marriage. And quite honestly, I'm a little tired of being transparent. So I thought I want to like shift the attention on somebody else for a week. So I thought we'd talk about the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, kind of shift it over there a little bit. But I was kind of tired of being so trans, so so uh, so vulnerable. And you know, there's there's that tendency when you get real vulnerable that you want to kind of go in hiding for a little bit. You want to like isolate a little bit after being very vulnerable. And probably if I would have planned better, I probably would have said somebody else should preach for me today. But as I was seeking the Lord of what to talk about today, I'm going to talk about the woman who was got caught in the act of adultery because I think that's a good story. But also I want to continue in this theme of talking about creating a culture and church where it's a safe place. Where people can come to church and they can feel safe and they can feel secure and they feel like I can share my story with somebody else and I know that I'm going to be met with love and kindness and gentleness. So I want to continue to talk about how church needs to be a safe place where people can be open and honest and vulnerable. Thank you, Yoshi. We appreciate you very much. That was incredible to have you and your wife here this morning. Thank you. And so we just continue to talk about that. Because, you know, I've been getting a lot of emails the last two weeks. From people telling me that they don't feel safe in church. People telling me that They've had a hard experience in church. And that makes me sad. It shouldn't be that way. Recently on Friday, I got an email from a guy I don't know saying I'd never had that opportunity like you had when you shared your story with a friend. And he met you with love and kindness. And the person telling me they got the exact opposite in their church. That they were shunned. That they were shamed. And they left. But thankfully, he's watching online. And so we want to make sure that we create a culture where all people are loved and they're loved well. That people are encouraged. That people don't have to worry about what they're going to say, that they're not going to be rejected. So it reminds me of a book by Dr. Dan Siegel. He is kind of a psychiatrist, kind of known in the family circles. He wrote a book called The Power of Showing Up. It was a book that he wrote to help people know how to parent and how to parent well. And the premise of the book is we all want our kids to feel safe and secure, that someday they're able to leave home someday feeling secure. And he says what all kids need when they're growing up is they need to be seen and they need to be soothed and they need to feel safe. And if a kid has that at home, if they have parents or caregivers that can foster that environment where kids can feel seen and soothed and safe, then someday they're going to grow up and they're going to be secure adults. And what we do as our little kids is we want kids to know that home is always a safe place. We want kids to know that when they're seen, it's not like just seeing somebody like, oh yeah, there's, there's Joey over there, but to seeing that a kid wants the parents to know if there's something going on off inside of them, 
They want their parents to be able to pick that up so their parents know how to bring them comfort because, as you know, little kids sometimes have a hard time articulating what's going on on the inside. So to be seen is more than just to be visually seen, but kids want to be in an environment where they know somebody's watching out for what's going on inside of them. And then our role as parents and caregivers and grandparents is to love that child when they're at that situation so they feel safe. Because we know we cannot protect a person from all adversity. You're going to hit bumps in the road. But if we can help a child feel safe and soothed in the midst of a storm that gives them the security to know that I always have people that I can count on. And so the whole book that he wrote on parenting was how kids need that. And then when kids grow older in their life, that they learn how to see themselves, to see what's going on inside of them so they can do some self-soothing or self-comfort and they know how to regulate themselves so they feel safe and secure. And that's kind of the book, the timeline that he talks about of nurturing a child. Then a Christian psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Kurt Thompson, he talked about his work and he said that's great work, but he said, we don't just need that feeling to feel safe and secure as we're little, but we need that our entire lives. There's not a point in our life where suddenly we become an adult and no longer do we need to be seen or soothed or safe or secure, but that we need that in our entire life. And that's part of what Christian community is for. That people know that they can come back to a community of believers where they can feel seen and soothed and comforted and safe and secure. And from that place of safety, then you can interact in the world because we all know we can leave church and we're going to get criticized or, 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 or have a rough time in the world, but we always want a group of people that we can count on. That we know, okay, I always have these people I can go back to. But we also know that ultimately the person that is going to give us everything we need is our relationship with Jesus Christ. That we know Jesus is the ultimate one that sees us and comforts us, and makes us safe, and makes us secure. So as followers of Jesus, we go to Christ on a daily basis. We go to Christ for prayer, and devotion, and reading the Word, because we want to encounter Christ on a daily basis. Because we want Him to see us, and to comfort us, and to give us a sense of safety. And there's times that we open the Bible, and it's like Jesus is sitting there. You open the Bible, and it makes sense to you. And it brings you comfort and security. And there's times that you have that prayer experience where you're praying, and you pray for a half hour, but it feels like you only prayed for a minute or two because it's so easy to pray. And it just so flowed in prayer. And just felt like Jesus is sitting there with you, guiding you in prayer. And you sense the power of the Holy Spirit. We love those kind of times of devotion. That's the kind of things that happen in our life that we're like, that's fun. But then there's those mornings that you get up and you spend time with Jesus and you're like, I read the Bible, but it really didn't make any sense. I really wanted some comfort and encouragement today and I didn't really sense I got any. And I prayed, but I found myself on Facebook just scrolling through instead of praying because I kind of got bored. We know what those days are like, and none of us like that, but that's the reality that sometimes following Jesus can be the greatest encounter, and sometimes it feels a little boring. Or it feels like you're a little bit disconnected, and there's times that's frustrating because you're like, Jesus, I really could use some encouragement today. Because I feel like I'm on the edge of doing something stupid or I'm on the edge of just feeling insecure. I'm on the edge of feeling hopeless, and I kind of wish that I sensed you more right now. 
it's easy to say, well, you know, sometimes we got we to ignore our emotions. We got to ignore these feelings because they can distract us. And I recognize that your emotions can deceive you, but also sometimes your emotions can kind of guide you and help you understand a little bit more of what you're dealing with. I always find it fascinating that Jesus cried when his good friend Lazarus died. We could easily say, Jesus, why are you crying? You know, you're God. You know that he's going to be raised from the dead in the next hour or two. You know he's going to be fine, but Jesus is weeping because that was a human part of him, that he had emotions. And his emotions were informing him that he is sad. And there's times that our emotions inform us that we are sad. And that's why we go to Christ sometime in prayer, because we want him to comfort our emotions. But what do you do when you're having that experience where you want to sense and encounter God more, but you feel like he's kind of distant, or you wonder, God, are you listening to my prayer right now? Or what the worst thing that happens is you're wondering, God, what am I doing wrong that I don't sense your presence? Sometimes we do that. We think it must be me. I must be doing something wrong because other people can pray and it seems like they encounter you more. What do you do at times like that? I think it's always good for us to be grounded in the reality that God is love and grounded in the reality of when Jesus went to the cross. One of my favorite verses is Romans 5, 6. It says, When we were utterly helpless... Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. That is such a beautiful verse. He came at just the right time. I probably should have that sign in probably 50 different places in my car and house. At just the right time. At just the right time is sandwiched right between utterly helpless and sinners. And Christ came at just the right time. It's such a good reminder of the timeliness of God because I think quite often we quickly become discouraged when our timeline doesn't seem to be matching up with God's timeline. We easily become discouraged when the plans that I have doesn't seem like God is cooperating with his divine help. And it's easy to get frustrated at that point. I'm going to read the rest of this couple of verses around this Romans passage. It says, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though somebody might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die while we are still sinners. It's such a beautiful and a powerful verse to remember at the times you're wondering, where is Jesus? I love how the two words in verse 6 they use to describe us. Number one, we're utterly helpless. Literally, the word means you cannot help yourself. There's nothing you can do to get out of your situation. You are powerless. And what this verse is in reference to is your salvation. There's nothing you can do. You're completely helpless. There's nothing you can get do. The second word is the word sinners. Now, this particular Greek word that's translated as sinners means a failure to show any respect to God. It means you didn't even care about God. And that's at the point where God came at just the right time. When you're helpless 
and he could care less about God. That's when he came. That's quite remarkable because the situation is pretty hopeless. If you think that your future is going to be determined by your attitude and your holiness, you have no future at all unless Christ God comes at just the right time in the midst of your hopelessness, in the midst of your sinfulness. See, that's the beautiful part of this passage is that God sees you at your absolute worst and says, I want to help. I want to come into your situation. I want to spend eternity with you. See, we all have that desire to be seen. And that's what God's doing in this verse. He's seeing you at your point of desperation. He's seeing you at your hopelessness. He's seeing the brokenness inside of you. And he says, I'm going to come alongside of you, not to condemn you, but to deliver you. And that's the beautiful part of this passage is that God says, this is a comfort I'm going to give you. See, we all want somebody to see what's broken inside of us, to offer a shalom or peace. And that's what God is doing in this passage. And the big question of the day is why? Why is God doing this? It's because God is love. John 1, John 4, verse 8 simply says, God is love. That's his essence, that's his character, and everything that God does is simply based on his love. And the second reason why is because God's love is unconditional. That's hard for us to kind of understand in our culture. We often are used to conditional love. If you do this for me, I'll love you. If you do this for me, I'll accept you. But if God had his system of the world based on conditional love, not one of us would have a chance. So God in his kindness shows us unconditional love that while we were yet sinners. And the third reason that we see why is because God wants to show us grace. God wants to show us kindness. He wants to show us blessings. See, God could come at this moment and say you're utterly helpless and your attitude is wrong and there's nothing I'm going to do for you. But because of his love and his unconditional love, he says, I'm going to show you kindness. It's interesting in this verse that it says that we are helpless and had no respect for God. But it doesn't give a big list of the sins that we have done. It's not like one of those other passages in the Bible that might list gossip or all the other sins that it could list to go on. It just says you were disrespectful to God. You didn't care about God. I think the Bible wants us to see in this passage that sin is not just a list of sins and not just your external behavior, but this passage wants us to understand that sin is a heart issue. That it's about your heart is not being satisfied with God. That your heart is saying, God doesn't bring me what I want from him, so I'm going to have to look another place. See, sometimes we'll define sin as saying, it's thinking that God is not meeting my needs, so I need to look someplace else to get satisfied. That's why we often say that sin is always a reflection or a condition of the heart. That's why in the Bible we'll go on and we'll talk about over a thousand times about the condition of the heart that's sin is a heart issue.
And see, our biggest problem is not lying or cheating or manipulating. Our biggest problem always has to do with the condition of our heart. Anthony Hookham in his book says this famous quote, when the Bible talks about the heart, it's referring to that spiritual part of us where our emotions and our desires dwell. That's what God wants to do. He wants to transform our heart. Sometimes we're focused on our behavior. We're not seeing what God actually wants to do is transform our heart. Our behavior simply helps us to understand the condition of our heart. And so that's kind of a dilemma that we have in church. Do we talk about sin or we do talk about the heart that needs transformation? Because at one point you want to talk hard about sin and the consequences of sin. You want to talk about the seriousness of sin. And on the other hand, you want to talk about God changing your heart and the love and compassion of God. And it's kind of the dilemma. How do you do both at the same time? How do you talk about sin and show a person compassion? And that's why I want to talk today about the woman caught in the act of adultery in John 8. Because it's an example of how Christ bridges the two. Let me read this for you, verses 1 through 11. A woman returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, when he was back again at the temple, a crowd soon gathered. And he sat down and he taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? They were trying to trap Jesus into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, all right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with a woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I go and sin no more. I think this is one of the most compassionate and loving stories in the Bible when you see how Jesus deals with a person who had sinned, especially this woman who was caught in the act of adultery. So you've got to imagine that Jesus is out with his disciples, he's out with his, his followers, and Jesus is teaching them, and suddenly they can hear all this commotion down the street. So everybody's being distracted from Jesus' teaching and they're watching out of the corner of their eye what's happening down the street. And as, Jesus, as this woman is dragged closer to Jesus, you can see this woman is probably in extreme stress. I can only imagine the anxiety that this woman was feeling as she was dragged by these religious leaders through the town and through the city and brought into the temple while everybody else is watching her. It's a pretty good chance this woman probably didn't have on any clothes. Maybe she grabbed the sheet off the bed on their way out of the house and was dressed in maybe just a little bit of clothing. And here these religious leaders show her no love or no compassion. But they drag her and throw her in front of Jesus. Now this is, clear, this is classic injustice. Because according to the law, both the man and the woman caught in the act of adultery should have been stoned. But the man's not there. Just the woman. 
There's a lot that could be said about that, and it's, it's clear from the story that this is a complete setup that they want to show to people that they want to just set up Jesus to discredit Jesus. And I think that's a lot of at the heart of a lot of social, issue, social justice issues. It's the enemies trying to discredit Jesus. But we, I like this chapter because it shows us what Jesus does at the point of injustice. So this woman is in front of Jesus. She's on the ground and the Pharisees are looking at Jesus and saying, all right, what are you going to do? Are you going to kill her? Are you going to get her, let her go free? And my guess is this woman probably thought she's going to be killed that day. My guess is that woman was on the ground and she was probably thinking to herself, I hope that the very first stone that's thrown kills me. I hope it goes really quick. Because she's watching that crowd of accusers around her with stones in their hand ready to throw them. And she's probably on the ground thinking, I wonder who's going to take care of my family. I wonder what my family and my friends are going to say when they find out this about me. So she's on the ground, just waiting. Just waiting for the first stone to hit her. And Jesus does something unique. He bends down. And he starts doodling in the sand, starts writing something in the sand that nobody knows what he's writing. And the whole time Jesus is bent over, people are keep, continue to ask him questions. So Jesus stands up again. And he says, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. My guess is that woman is probably prepared that stone is going to come. And Jesus bends over again and he starts writing in the sand. People always wonder, what was Jesus doing? What was he writing in the sand? There's theory after theory about what he was writing. There's theory of why did he bend over? I never knew. But I think I got a new theory this morning. When I read Psalm 116, It says he bends down to listen. God bends down to listen. I just wonder if Jesus was bending down so he could listen to this woman. That he was listening to her dying request. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and he hears my prayer for mercy because he bends down to listen. I will pray as long as I have breath. Death wrapped its ropes around me. The terrors of the grave overtook me. I saw only trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Please, Lord, save me. How kind the Lord is. How good he is, so merciful, this God of ours. The Lord protects those of childlike faith. I was facing death, and he saved me. I think that's why the Lord bent over, so he could hear.
And as the Lord's bending over, listening to her prayer, the text tells us that one by one, people started dropping their stones. The stones that could have been thrown to kill the woman, suddenly people are dropping them to the ground because Jesus is standing up for this woman. Jesus is standing between this woman and her accusers, and he's saying, no, you're not going to do this. And that's what happened on the day that we got saved. That every stone that could have been thrown against us started dropping to the ground. That's the sound you hear when Jesus became your Lord and Savior. Stones dropping. And that's what we remember when we have those mornings or days and we're like, God, it doesn't seem like you're comforting me right now. It seems like you're distant. It seems like I'm praying and I don't feel you close to me. I think it's time that we remember the sounds of stones dropping that could have been tossed against you. See, the truth is, when Jesus said that the person who's committed no sin throw the first stone, Jesus could have thrown that first stone. He could have killed her right there on the spot. But instead of throwing the first stone, Jesus bends down to listen. And he listens to your prayer. And he listens to your request. And so everybody starts to leave. All of her accusers start to leave. One by one, they start walking away. And said, until it says it's left with just Jesus and the woman. And he says to her, where are your accusers? And she acknowledges that they're gone. There's times we have to remember that. That our accusers are gone. That because of Jesus, our accusers are gone. But there's days it seems like our accusers are pretty loud. It seems like there's days it seems like our accusers have a big microphone. And it's good to remember that Jesus stands between you and your accusers. And the stones that your accusers would throw at you have become powerless and they have to fall to the ground. So Jesus says this beautiful thing to this woman. He says, okay, I don't condemn you either. Now go on your way and don't sin anymore. It's a beautiful story. But sometimes you're left at the end of the story saying, well, how is she not going to sin anymore? I mean, she's obviously in a bad cycle. I mean, obviously this woman, I mean, nobody wakes up in the morning and decides to do what she did that. Nobody wants that life. Well, how is she going to change? How is she going to stop? You almost wonder, Jesus, like, what does what, what she do next? It seems like Jesus has almost given her impossible command to say, okay, now go and sin no more. How can we expect her to stop what she's been doing? And that's the truth that we need to see in the story of how does a person really change? See, we change our behavior because God has first accepted us. This woman will start changing her behavior because the first thing that Jesus said to her is, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. It's important for us to see the order of these words because so often I think when we hear these words, we put first, go and sin no more, 
and then I will not condemn you. But Jesus says, puts it in the right order of saying, I don't condemn you, so go and sin no more. See, we change our behavior, not because we have willpower and strength. We have changed our behavior because God has accepted us. Because the acceptance that Christ has shown each, to each of us, that's how we can change our behavior. But sometimes if you grow up in kind of a religious culture, it's easy to think I have to change my behavior, then God will accept me. But God knows full well that this woman, if she could change her behavior on her own, she would have done it decades earlier. She would have not waited till now. But she could start changing her behavior because she received the love and compassion from God. And I love how in this verse what Jesus does is he elevates love higher than his position on adultery. He doesn't change his position on adultery. He just elevates love. Because God knows and Jesus knows that this traumatized woman will never change until she experiences the acceptance that Jesus has for her. I love how J.D. Greer says it. I think he says it well. He says, God's acceptance is the power that liberates us from sin. It's not the reward for having liberated ourselves. God's acceptance is the power that liberates us from sin. It's not the reward for having liberated ourselves. See, that's the only way that we can walk in freedom is when we receive God's love. And the third thing that this story shows us is that Jesus never compromised his position. He never compromised his position. He could have picked up a stone and threw it. He had every right to do it. But instead of compromising his position, he paid the penalty of sin for this woman that day so she could go free. Jesus acknowledged the fact that there was the law. There was sin and there was consequences. But he said, put it on me. I'll take that from her. See, what Jesus did that day is he saw this woman. He saw her for what truly was going on in her heart. He saw the condition that she was in. He saw that she was helpless. She saw that she had nothing she could do to redeem herself. Jesus saw the fact that this woman didn't have a right attitude with him either. But then he gave her comfort. He gave her comfort by bending down to listen to her. He bent over and he listened to her desperate prayers. The same thing he does every day when we pray. Even the times it seems like we're not encountering God. He's faithful to his word and he bends down to listen every single time we pray. And then he makes her feel safe. I wonder if Jesus said the words to her from Matthew 28, 20 that says, I am with you always. I just wonder when he sent to this woman, he said, okay, go on your way and sin no more. I wonder if he said to her, and by the way, I'm with you always. To give her that sense of being safe. And then how is she going to feel secure? 
I wonder if Jesus said to her the words from Mark 10, verse 27. That said, on your own, things are impossible. But with me, all things are possible. I wonder if that was the last words that he said to her as she went on her way. Because she had to go home. She had to face her family. She had to face her husband. She had to face her community. That was not going to be easy. She could not hide. How's she going to do that? I think Jesus said to her, remember, I'm always with you. And remember, everything is possible with me. That's what we have to remember. When we have those days and we're like, I don't seem to get the comfort I'm looking for. I don't seem to be getting the hope I'm looking for. I don't seem to have the security I'm looking for. But God says, at just the right time, I was there when you needed it the most. And I'm going to continue to do that. Because I bend down and I listen to you and I'm with you always and with me, all things are possible. So God, I thank you for today. I thank you, Lord, for this story. I thank you, God, for the reminder that all things are possible with you. And I thank you for the reminder that you are with us always. And God, I thank you that you don't throw the first stone. But you show us love and compassion and mercy at our most vulnerable time. And God, I pray for any person who's feeling right now like, oh, I'm not feeling like you're bending down to listen. That, Lord, you administer to that person or persons right now with your Holy Spirit. That they would have the confidence to know that you are bending down and listening. That you see us all. That you see every single one of us in our situation. You see us in our hopelessness, and our helplessness. You see us with a bad attitude. And you also see us with good attitudes. And you see us rejoicing and worshiping. You see us how we truly are. And you're always inviting us deeper into relationship with you. God, I thank you for that. God, I thank you that your compassion is more than we could understand. God, help us to be a people that are motivated by love and we're motivated by your compassion. Help us to be people that reach out to a lost and dying world that we show kindness. God, I thank you for the work of transformation that you're doing in us. And I pray, Lord, that you just accelerate this process so that we can represent you and represent you well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.